Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. Reckless Eric is our guest today. You may remember a few years ago, he was live in the studio with his wife, Amy Rigby. They played a few songs, just them and a, sometimes an a iPad drum machine. And uh, Anyway, it's over at the archive, wfmu.org slash Michael, if you want to hear that performance. This guy seemed to remember it was good and spirited. Uh, he has a new album out called Transients. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about how he started, etc., etc. Actually, he'll talk about most of it. I, I do very little talking in this episode. Uh, he's got a lot to say, but I think most of it pretty enjoyable. So uh, stay tuned. Um, Gilbert O'Sullivan is coming up next, two weeks from now. So stay tuned for that. Here is my chat with Reckless Eric. Uh, there is Dead End from Transients, uh, from the new Reckless Eric album, and uh, the man is on the telephone. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Morning. Yes, I'm. I'm okay. How are you? I'm. I'm terrific. Now, a lot's going on. Uh, you've got the new album out, uh, Transients, and uh, some shows coming up, including next Sunday in Brooklyn at Union Pool. Uh, but I want to start with about two weeks ago. I saw you and your wife Amy Rigby playing a gig in Montclair, New Jersey, and uh, you were on bass for much of the show, and I, I loved the way you were playing the bass. I, I think there's like a thing when guitar players play, play the bass, you know? Oh, I don't know about that, because I started, well, I kind of started out as a guitar player when I was a kid, you know, but I realized very quickly that uh, you could get a gig if you played the bass. So like, I started being a bass player, but... I don't know. I mean, there's this kind of thing that guitar players playing bass and lead bass and things (laughs) like that. But I I really don't think of myself as a guitar player playing the bass. When I'm playing the bass, I'm playing the bass. Yeah, you have a lovely feel uh, for the bass. There's something... uh, Thank you very much. Perhaps another career uh, in... For you later. Oh no! I should have been. I should have been either a bass player or a roadie. <laughs> <laughs> I was a roadie for a while. Who were you a roadie um, for? Well, I was a roadie for a for a country and western singer called George Hamilton the Fourth. But I was a roadie for about a week, and then people kept leaving the tour, and I ended up being the sound engineer. You know, it was kind of like, can you do sound? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Mm. (laughs) Not making eye contact. And I learned very quickly, you know. I mean, like, that was my apprenticeship as a a sound engineer. And then I realized that it was better paid than being a roadie, you know. I mean, you still ended up being a roadie, really. I mean, like, I'd end up doing everything. So I feel like I feel like with Amy, I feel like the roadie who stands in on bass <laughs> and and harmonies as well. You did some killer harmonies. I I really enjoyed it. Uh, but let's. So is the new record recorded in your house? Are you the engineer, uh, uh, the sound recorder of the record? 
Yeah. Well, I haven't made a record, recorded an album outside of my own place since 1984. Um, I didn't like the way studios were going. But in my last two records, this one and Construction Time and Demolition, I've been working with a man called Andrea Tokik, who is... Uh, has a studio down in Nashville called the Bomb Shelter. And basically, I, pl- I played at his wedding, you know, and I, I thought, oh, I don't know, I don't know, this guy's some producer or other. And then I realized he produced the first Alabama Shakes album, which, uh, do you know that one? Sure, uh, yeah. Is it? Yeah. And, uh, like, he had produced all this stuff that sounded great one way or another, all kinds of odd stuff. And um, mixed Jay Retard records and all kinds of things. But anyway, like, um, um, uh, so, like, I kind of, like, got got to know him and uh, we talked about recording and uh, he was like, you know, he was as, as full of admiration for me as I was for him. And um, we decided we had to work together. So he has basically, um, I've relinquished control of my albums in a way to him when once they're recorded and like, you know, hovered around sort of telling him what to do and, uh, you know, and arguing with him about this and that. And we've mixed my two last albums together. So how did how did this start for you? I mean, what's the first records you remember hearing and going bonkers about? Well, uh, ever. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, probably Let's Twist Again by Chubby Checker or something like that. Um, That's you a know, great they were, yeah, I mean, I love Chubby Checker actually. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, you know, when it really came into focus, would have been the Beatles um, from the outset, you know, from Love Me Do onwards. It was wow, this is this is this is this is something really like this was different, and it was like you know, it, it, it was the beginning of pop music for me and um you know that led on to the rolling stones i was particularly enamored of the rolling stones because they were on a program on the british tv called sunday night at the london palladium and uh, they started up and it sounded great it sounded really kind of brutal really kind of ill balanced and out of tune and everything which is what pop groups used to sound like live and my dad got up out of his armchair and went over to the tv and said that he said that's not entertainment and switched <laughs> the tv off <laughs> so like you know i mean instantly they were and then there was like that was one of the great moments of british tv for me pop tv and the next one was The Who on Ready, Steady, Go, you know, and they, The Who smashed up their equipment. They did My Generation, and, like, it was like, you couldn't believe you'd seen that happen. And then the other, the, the other great moments of pop TV was uh, Jimi Hendrix, the Jimi Hendrix experience on the Lulu show. And they got halfway through Hey Joe or whatever it was, 
And uh, he suddenly stopped. He said, enough of this rubbish. This is for Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker and started playing Sunshine and Might Have Your Love. And he, it was like the plan would have been that he would have done something like Purple Haze as a duet with Lulu, you know, probably sitting on stools. But he didn't want to do that, you know. And it was like you could tell that he had thrown the whole show into disarray. And, uh, like, you, you could almost see the cameras and the technicians, like, they're trying to get trying to figure out what, what to do as, as the credits rolled and they went out on this jam based around Sunshine of Your Love. That was a great pop TV moment. And then I think the next one after that would have been the Sex Pistols on Bill Grundy, but that wasn't really pop so much as some kind of sensation because it was the first time I ever heard someone say the F word on the TV. It's interesting. There's a bit yeah. of chaos in all of those examples. So, yes, it's very interesting yeah. because, because the, your, the reaction your father had maybe 10 years later, I assume that some folks were having to you. Is that right? I don't know, actually. I never thought about it. I mean, you know, um, I mean, it, 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 people said that like, I couldn't sing and that's the funny thing, you know, I couldn't sing until the point where me and Amy made a covers album. We made a record called Two Way Family Favourites. And I figured that because we were doing cover versions, suddenly they knew what tune I was singing. But when, you know, I would go through some weird notes which I meant to do, but they would say, well, what's that? He can't sing, you know. It used to annoy me. But then at the same time, I preferred it. I like I had a band in the 80s called the Lembright Combo. And uh, when we made our first record, someone actually said to me, is this some sort of joke? And I had people like A&R men practically crying and saying, why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's go to the very earliest days. Uh, how, did you just send a tape into Stiff Records? How did you, how did you find your way to them? Um, I read an article about them because they just done Heart of the City and I heard, you know, so it goes it was. Um, by Nick Lowe, which was back with Heart of the City. And that was the side that everyone liked, was Heart of the City. And it was a minute and 30 seconds long. And it sounded just unlike anything. It's, it was, you know, it was great. It was like, you know, the, oh, it's an overused thing, but a breath of fresh air, I suppose. And... Um, it was like everything they talked about was what I was really into at the time. Um, you know, short songs like uh, were really kind of, I suppose, uh, uh, I can't think of the word for it, but a sound, you know, uh, that was tough and in your face and stuff like that. And I thought, well, this is great. So I... I I was I, I had left our college and I'd moved to London. I thought it'd be easy to get into a band in London, 
you know, because I'd been up in bands in the northeast of England, and I couldn't get into a, I couldn't get any, I couldn't seem to get anything going. I mean, it had been all of two months that I'd been there, and nothing seemed to be happening. Suddenly, there were stiff records, so I made a tape. I made a cassette tape of all my songs, and I took it to them and like. Nick Lowe was sitting in there with the damned, as it turned out, and he thought I seemed like a very strange person, which I felt I probably was. And uh, so he decided he had to listen to my cassette, so he did. And then they couldn't find me, and they called me three days later and asked me to make a record. So how how quickly was a record in the shops? Oh... Oh, it wasn't. Yeah, it didn't come out until the following. I made the record. It was Whole Wide World. And I recorded it in October. But we never got around to recording the B-side because the A-side took longer than it should have done, really. I mean, probably because we were all drunk and because, like, I'd never made a record before. Am, uh, am I right that it's just you and Steve Goulding and Nick on that record? Yes, it is. It is such a uh, special song. Did you know right away that that song was going to be, you know, so important in your life? Um, I had no idea of longevity and career or or kind of, you no, know, pop was a very throwaway thing. I mean, when I, you know, in, in hindsight, yes. I mean, I knew when I wrote it, that, that it was a good song and like no one wanted to play it because it only had two chords in it and you know um, everyone would say well but you know they're supposed to have uh, songs are supposed to have three or four chords not two you can't just have <laughs> two and I go well there's no there's no place to put a third chord in really so, so and and then the other thing is the the two the two extra beats in the chorus which you know, make the song, but I didn't know anything about timing. I mean, it was a long time before I found uh, anyone who would play that song, a band that would. I I started. I used to play with a piano player who I went to art school with. You know, we both did painting and everything at art college, and he played the piano, and we got him in a band, and. He was like, because he was a trained musician, he went, oh, yeah, it's just this, it does this, and he explained it to everybody. Mm. Are you anywhere near and, a guitar? Can you demonstrate? Uh, uh, I could try. Hold on. <laughs> Got you on speakerphone. Sounds fine. And, yeah, good. Okay. Hold on. So that piece, it goes... Um, can you hear that? Sure. I told her all I felt. I told her all I felt. Just to find her. See, you see what I mean? There's that, right? But then the next time it goes, I told her all I felt. I told her all I felt. Find out where they hide her. And it's those two find out where they hide her. See what I mean? It's yes, like, I, I was trying to count along, yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a bit confusing. Sorry, I've got a guitar picking in now. Yes, it's a bit confusing, you know. It's, um, it's not, it was not normal. 
I, you know, it came out as a single and it was top of all the independent charts and everything. And like, I was on the cover of the Sounds New Musical Express, Melody Maker, Record Mirror, uh, all in the same week. I mean, I, I didn't know. I didn't know if that was normal or what. You know, it all seemed quite odd to me, but strangely kind of, okay, this is what happens. You you make a record and then you, you become a pop star overnight. <laughs> I got it. Okay. Got, you know, I mean, it <laughs> was... Was Stiff Records good at uh, paying royalties? <laughs> no. No, I mean, like, that's another conversation, really. I mean, like, you know, the whole thing was... The thing is, it started off as this ramshackle enterprise where there was really no money in it, but, uh, you know, it was Jake Riviera who went on to manage Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe. And, you know, I, I mean, I fully believe he was in it for the love of it. A lot of people got into it because they, you know, because they were into the career of it. Um, but he was in it for the love of it and the art of it. He also wanted to make money because he sussed out that there was money in it. But he wanted everyone to make money if that's what they wanted. And what he used to ask you was, what do you want to be, rich or famous? And, of course, most of the, we all said, like, famous. Because, you know, famous people were rich and stuff like that. I mean, it's incredibly... We know like the, the world is less naive now in some ways. Mind you, I don't know how we can say that, really. But, yeah. Um, except when it comes to voting, perhaps. Um, but um, I was going to say, like, uh, you know, the, the whole longevity of whole wide world, I remember that when it came to my second album and going on tour with that, it was like the, the, I think the sound engineer came to a rehearsal and we had to run the set on the sound stage and we, we did it all. And he said, but where's whole wide world? And I said, well, no one's going to want to hear that. That was last year. That was how it was, you know, and you're sort of like uh, moving along, you know. I mean, I had to play it. I realised, oh, this is a pop hit, isn't it? You know, and like you... You play your hits and like, yeah, you you enjoy doing it. If you don't enjoy doing it, you don't do it. You can't pretend to enjoy for an audience, you know. Uh, let me remind folks that Reckless Eric is our guest, and RecklessEric.com is the website, and Union-Pool.com is the website for information about your gig next Sunday, uh, June 30th, in Brooklyn at Union Pool, 2 p.m. It's in the afternoon. It's part of uh, sort of a summer festival that uh, Union Pool is involved in. I, I, I know that you've got a gig coming up in Philadelphia and one up in Kingston and New Haven and uh, in the Catskills. Oh, yeah, got, yeah, yeah. Doing what, uh, we're doing the the record store in Kingston, yeah, because, yeah. I've heard that you sort of, I get the feeling that you are not so keen on touring as as you were. You're a little bit toured out, maybe? 
No, well, it's kind of like... Look, I had a really rough year last year. I uh, I mean, in a way. Uh, I mean, you know, to start with, I, there was Amy's album came out, and so I did six weeks touring with Amy in, in America and in the, in, in the UK. And um, then... I came home, I had about five days off, and straight off the bat, I went out and did 60 dates with my own album. Actually, literally packed up after a show in New York, flew to England, and, uh, you know, arrived, in, arrived in, in, in London at some sort of weird time of the evening, checked into a hotel, and the next morning I did a radio show, and then I was gone out on tour in the UK for the whole of May and then like while I was doing that my my daughter's mother died which was a big shock to her I suppose my ex from a long time ago uh, and you know there was that and my own mother was going downhill she was really i mean she's very old she's 93 but anyway i did all that touring with that going on and then i came back to the the u.s and you know i, I had three days off and then drove down south did all these gigs and i did Florida and Texas and all across the south and up through the west coast and all across the midwest and everything and I came back from that by the time I came back from all of that I had done something like 61 tour dates and I was practically insane you know I mean like there's a point where you walk into a some sort of horrible kind of Howard Johnson hotel in some town that you can't almost can't figure out why you're there except some people wanted to see you play but for the rest of it you don't want to eat in the Waffle House and you walk into this horrible kind of hotel room and it stops being a laugh because it's not some sort of temporary this is a you know, this is some sort of trip out, a beano or something. It's your life. This is what you do every night. You go into a hotel room like this and then, you know, and then you drive for hours and hours and then you, and it, it gets a bit old eventually. And I thought, and then when I came home from that, uh, basically my mother died. So like, you know, I had to deal with all of that. That was very sad, you know. I mean, she was very old and it was kind of expected, but it was still, it's like someone, what, what I've learned from that is that people aren't gone until they're gone. They're really gone, you know. Um, and, and, yeah, so that was quite a lot to deal with. It's interesting that through all of that, you didn't lose your songwriting thing, you know, that you're still able to write some songs. Well, you know, I sort of had to go to Australia and New Zealand to play. I had this other tour dates put there. So, like, later on, you know, in the in the autumn, the fall, as you call it, and, um, and I... 
I had I had um, like a few days either end because I I flew to Los Angeles and then got a flight from Los Angeles because it was less painful than taking the sort of a twenty one hour flight from New York. You know, I thought I I couldn't deal with that idea. I thought I'll, I'll have a few days either end of it in Los Angeles. And, you know, I just ended up in these kind of crummy places, like sitting there thinking, why am I in Los Angeles all on my own like this? And uh, whose idea was this? But I ended up writing a lot of songs. Hmm. Uh, Let's talk about uh, Father to the Man, which we're going to hear just a minute from now. I assume this is an autobiographical song. Absolutely it is, yes. Some aren't, you know. Some of them are just kind of things. Everyone assumes that everything you write is autobiographical, and some of it is, and some of it, it's never that simple, and it's quite often not one event. But I can absolutely say, um, yes, Father to the Man is completely autobiographical, you know. I mean, after my mum died, I started thinking about my dad and how he was, and he was a very difficult man. He was he was kind of morose he was very moody big mood swings and everything because he was um he was addicted to steroids um for because he'd been he had had a chest complaint called sarcoidosis in the late 50s and they zapped it with a huge huge dose of steroids you know steroid treatment and they could never ever get him off it i'm I'm really really opposed to steroids you know you never hear of anyone getting off steroids it's a big honor for the drug companies but um they don't tell you about the mood swings that they cause, all the, all the side effects. I mean, the physical side effects killed him eventually. It took uh, it took about, what, 50 years to do it. But, um, yeah. Um, but he was a strange man. I think there was a very, there was a very kind and gentle soul trying to get out from under the steroid mask, really. How awful! That's. Uh, that's I'm awful. sorry. That's, that sounds depressing. I don't want to depress everybody on a Saturday morning. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, I want to remind folks that next Sunday, folks can see Reckless Eric in person at uh, Union Pool, two p.m. show Sunday afternoon. Uh, great way to start off the summer. And there's also uh, the 27th in Philadelphia. And 28th in Kingston, 29th in New Haven, uh, and uh, July 3rd at Catskill at the High Low. Uh, and the new record is called Transience, uh, which I had mm. to, I, I, I had a feeling of what that word meant, but I had to, I did Google it just to well, make sure. Yeah, I kind of like the word, you know. I mean, like, it's very funny. I thought, uh, I feel I could call this record Transience. And I thought, well, I can't do that. I mean, well, no one will know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, we have Google. Put the, I put the Dex dictionary definition of it on the um, on the label on the artwork somewhere. Hmm. All right, let's hear "Father to the Man," and we'll see you next uh, Sunday at Union Pool. Thanks for uh, visiting with us, Reckless Eric. Thank you.